Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the MSCI third quarter 2020 earnings conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session where we will limit participants to one question and one follow-up. We will have further instructions for you at that time. As a reminder, this conference call is being recorded. I would now like to turn the call over to Sally Schwartz, Head of Investor Relations and Treasurer. You may begin. Thank you, Operator. Good day and welcome to the MSCI third quarter 2020 earnings conference call. Earlier this morning, we issued a press release announcing our results for the third quarter 2020. This press release, along with an earnings presentation we will reference on this call, as well as a brief quarterly update, are available on our website, msci.com, under the Investor Relations tab. Let me remind you that this call contains forward-looking statements. You are cautioned not to place undue reliance on forward-looking statements, which speak only as of the date on which they are made and are governed by the language on the second slide of today's presentation. For a discussion of additional risks and uncertainties, please see the risk factors and forward-looking statements disclaimer in our most recent Form 10-K and in our other SEC filings. During today's call, in addition to results presented on the basis of U.S. GAAP, we also refer to non-GAAP measures, including, but not limited to, organic operating revenue growth rates, adjusted EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA expenses, adjusted EPS, and free cash flow. We believe our non-GAAP measures facilitate meaningful period-to-period comparisons and provide insight into our core operating performance. You'll find a reconciliation to the equivalent gap measures in the earnings materials and an explanation of why we deem this information to be meaningful, as well as how management uses these measures in the appendix of the earnings presentation. We will also discuss run rate, which estimates at a particular point in time the annualized value of the recurring revenues under our client agreements for the next 12 months, subject to a variety of adjustments and exclusions that we detail in our SEC filings. As a result of those adjustments and exclusions, the actual amount of recurring revenues we will realize over the following 12 months will differ from run rate. We therefore caution you not to place undue reliance on run rate to estimate or forecast recurring revenues. Additionally, we will discuss organic run rate growth figures, which exclude the impact of of changes in foreign currency and the impact of any acquisitions or divestitures. On the call today are Henry Fernandez, our Chairman and CEO, Bear Pettit, our President and COO, and Annie Wishman, our CFO and Chief Strategy Officer. Finally, I would like to point out that members of the media may be on the call this morning in a listen-only mode. With that, let me now turn the call over to Henry Fernandez. Henry? Thank you, Sally. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. My colleagues and I hope you and your families are remaining safe and healthy. During the third quarter, and despite the challenging environment for our clients, MSCI had strong financial performance, including total revenue growth of nearly 8%, run rate growth of 11%, adjusted EBITDA growth of 13%, and adjusted earnings per share growth of 31%.
MSCI continues to play a central role helping investors build better portfolios for a better world. We are executing our mission in two key interrelated ways, creating indices that serve as underlying components for client portfolios and equipping our clients with the essential ingredients for them to build their own optimized portfolios. Indices as underlying components for client portfolios include benchmarks for active managers, replication tools for indexed managers, and underlying indices for listed futures and options, structured products, and OTC derivatives. These indices can cover a very wide spectrum of client portfolio construction needs, from equities to fixed income, from market cap weighted to ESG and climate overlays, and from factor tilts to thematic megatrends. Consequently, indices as underlying components have a vast number of use cases and therefore our business opportunities in this area are enormous. The essential ingredients to equip our clients to construct their own optimized portfolios include our factor, risk, and performance models, our ESG ratings and screenings, our climate metrics and value at risk models, and tools for thematic and megatrend exposures. Across these two interrelated offerings, we see incredible opportunities that span new product areas, new client segments, and new capabilities. New product areas include fixed income, ESG and climate, and derivatives, to name a few. New client segments include wealth management, corporates for ESG offerings, and insurance companies for fixed income offerings. New capabilities in support of our new product areas and client, new client segments include the enabling technology and the strategic partnerships that we're looking in a wide variety of different areas and with different entities. In my comments today, I will focus on opportunities in four new product areas, including ESG and climate, fixed income and liquidity, thematic investing, and derivatives. In future calls, I will comment on other areas of a strategic focus for MSCI. I'll start with our ESG and climate franchise. This quarter, it reached a run rate of $192 million, growing nearly 50% year on year. Approximately $15 million of this run rate relates to climate and has grown over 100% year on year. We continue to firmly believe there will be a large-scale reallocation of capital and repricing of financial assets over the next few years. Climate change, the move to a low-carbon economy, diversity and inclusion in the workplace, and other environmental, social, and governance shifts 
will deeply impact where capital is invested. MSCI is uniquely positioned to deliver the solutions to navigate these massive shifts. Specifically, in the ETF marketplace, we continue to see the launch of new ESG and climate equity ETFs linked to MSCI indices. At the end of the third quarter, assets under management in these ETFs have grown an incredible 186% year-on-year, reaching $71 billion. Our acquisition of Carbol Delta a year ago has also helped us to supercharge our climate capabilities. We now offer climate value at risk for investors across multiple asset classes, including most recently for real estate investors. As you can see, we're aggressively expanding our capabilities in ESG and climate and will continue to build on our established leadership in this space. Our fixed income franchise continue to grow this quarter as our strong position in ESG and climate enable us to capture more opportunities. AUMs in ETFs that are linked to Bloomberg Barclays MSCI ESG fixed income indices ended the third quarter at nearly $12 billion, more than doubling from a year ago. During the quarter, we launched 22 MSCI proprietary fixed income indices, including eight ESG and climate change indices. With this launch, we now offer the market a total of 40 MSCI proprietary fixed income indices across ESG, climate, factor, and issuance weighted. As you can see, our strategy in fixed income indices is to partner with other index providers, including Bloomberg Barclays, iBox, iTrax, and others, and to launch our own proprietary indices. In fixed income, we have also seen great progress with our liquidity analytics. We and our partner, IHS Market, are delivering must-have solutions that help investors understand and manage fixed income liquidity risk. This has been critical for investors to meet growing regulatory requirements. MSCI has already been well-positioned to support our clients with ESMA liquidity regulations in Europe that went into effect in the third quarter. Looking forward, we're also favorably positioned to help clients with potential liquidity reporting requirements in other jurisdictions around the world. Another product area of strategic focus for us is thematic investing. MSCI has built partnerships with ARC Invest and a number of other experts specializing in thematic investing. These relationships have generated indices focused on disruptive innovation and long-term structural changes or megatrends. We are seeing excellent traction across a range of use cases, from ETF licensing to structured products, which Bear will discuss. Finally, I will comment on derivatives. We continue to drive the strong growth of multi-country, multi-currency, 
MSCI index derivatives. This is a massive opportunity in its own right, but it would also reinforce the strength of our index franchise for both active and indexed investing. We are experiencing great success with these partnerships in listed futures and options with some of the world's most prominent global exchanges. Additionally, we're seeing tremendous opportunity to license our indices to broker dealers and banks for the creation of OTC derivatives and structured products. These efforts reinforce the virtuous ecosystem of MSCI exchange-traded products. Before I turn the call over to Bear, I am excited to announce we're planning a virtual Investor Day event for February 24th next year. Please hold that morning in New York Times open on your calendars. We'll have additional event details for you over the coming weeks. We very much look forward to sharing with you the many significant opportunities MSCI has to serve our clients' needs globally and to grow with the investment industry's strong underlying secular trends that create tremendous shareholder value opportunities for us. We will talk about our expansion plans in products and client segments and the capabilities we need to build out at MSCI to capitalize on this significant potential. To make the event as complete as possible, we will continue our active dialogue with all of you and all of our investors, including through surveys and listening tours. We look forward to hearing your views and how we can continue to optimize the MSCI franchise to achieve even greater shareholder value. Let me now turn the call over to Barry. Thank you, Henry, and greetings, everyone. Um, I'll start by noting an exciting milestone for our index segment, which reached $1 billion in run rate for the first time. Uh, we achieved this through growth in both the new product areas that Henry discussed and more established products like our market cap weighted indexes. Across MSCI, we continue to find many opportunities to produce content once and to find multiple uses for it to address a number of different client needs. I'll give a few examples within some of the product areas that Henry highlighted. Leveraging our broad ESG and climate content has enabled MSCI to contribute to further transparency and standardization in ESG disclosures. In September, we launched a tool to help investors evaluate their portfolio exposures and alignment across the 17 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Our Real Estate Climate VAR service has gained immediate traction with several new sales during this quarter. This combines our real estate data with climate change-related calculations to create new value for real estate investors. An added benefit to the launch of Real Estate Climate VAR 
is that many of our real estate clients now view MSCI in a new and innovative light. As a second example, this quarter we launched a new suite of MSCI fixed income climate change indexes which leverage our existing data in ESG and climate and apply them to fixed income benchmarks. These indexes enable institutional credit investors to build more climate resilient portfolios. They also allow investors to implement strategies that consider opportunities and risks associated with the ongoing transition to a lower carbon economy. Another product area we have frequently referenced on these calls is the relicensing of existing MSCI indexes for the creation of listed and OTC derivatives and structured products. As an example, this quarter we saw new OTC product creation from our broker-dealer clients in the form of total return swaps on our ESG leaders indexes. This activity was soon followed by the establishment of new positions in listed derivatives on MSCI Emerging Markets ESG Leaders Futures. We believe the potential for further growth in the ESG derivative space is very strong. Another great area for derivatives growth is thematics. Earlier this year, I mentioned we were working with a partner on a series of thematic indexes focused on the important areas of innovation in genomics and robotics. During this quarter, we won a license with a European bank for a new OTC swap based on an MSCI thematic index related to the circular economy and renewable energy. This swap is expected to drive structured product issuance in the region and is another good example of the MSCI-linked derivatives opportunity. As of the end of the third quarter, run rate for exchange-traded futures and options contracts linked to MSCI indexes was $49 million, growing over 60% year-on-year. We see significant potential in this space and believe the opportunity could represent hundreds of millions of revenue several years from now. Just as we are leveraging our content for multiple use cases, we are actively pursuing an open architecture strategy to push that content to clients through a variety of distribution channels. Earlier this month, MSCI ESG ratings were introduced on Bloomberg terminals, which are already a major distributor of our index data. Clients now have another ready mechanism to incorporate MSCI's ESG ratings into their portfolio analysis and investment processes. MSCI has adapted quickly and well to the remote working and virtual engagement model. In the third quarter across the company, we drove over 10% subscription run rate growth. This result reflected strong contributions from across our client base, including both established and emerging client segments. MSCI's client-centric approach has provided ongoing benefit not just to sales, but also to the retention of our existing business. MSCI's overall retention rate for the third quarter was 94.5%, improving approximately 100 basis points compared to the second quarter. Analytics retention rate had a notable improvement, increasing 180 basis points sequentially and 20 basis points year over year. Our team's creativity and dedication to solving problems for clients 
has been critical as global engagement models continue to evolve during the ongoing pandemic. We have previously spoken with you about our senior account manager and key account manager programs to engage with the C-suite level executives at our largest clients. These clients collectively represent 65% of MSCI's total run rate. And the retention rate for, for those clients was over 96% in the quarter, clearly demonstrating the power of our focused and integrated client approach. I'm encouraged by these milestones and look forward to keeping you updated as we continue to make progress on our key growth areas. Let me now turn the call over to Andy, who will discuss more specifics of the financial uh, aspects of our quarterly performance. Over to you, Andy. Thank you, Bear. And hello to everyone on the call this morning. As I step into the CFO role, I'm excited to lead our talented finance organization and re-engage with our shareholder and analyst community. I will be especially focused on further aligning strategy and finance to deliver even greater value to our clients, our employees, and our shareholders. As Henry and Bear have noted, the third quarter was another quarter of strong execution for MSCI. Operating revenues grew nearly 8%, and recurring subscription run rate grew over 10%, reflecting solid performance across the business. Assets under management and equity ETFs linked to MSCI indexes ended the third quarter at $909 billion. This reflects strong cash inflows of nearly $27 billion across all geographic exposures during the quarter. Over 75% of these inflows were allocated to ETFs with international exposures, which is a reversal of the trend we saw in the first half of the year. Approximately $7 billion of the inflows into MSCI-linked funds went into U.S. exposure funds, where we continue to have strong market share capture of flows driven by continued flows into ESG and factor products. In fact, equity ETFs linked to MSCI ESG and climate indexes experienced cash inflows of $11.4 billion during the quarter. Additionally, AUM levels were supported by improvements in equity market levels with $57 billion of appreciation from the end of the second quarter. As an update since the third quarter, as of October 21st, assets under management in equity ETFs linked to MSCI indexes have further improved to approximately $942 billion. I'll now review our asset-based fee revenue results, which were up 4.5% year-on-year, reflecting higher results across the board, including from ETFs, non-ETF products, and futures and options. Sequentially, the nearly $117 billion improvement in quarterly average AUM levels and equity ETFs linked to MSCI indexes aided in driving 15% higher asset-based fees from ETF products versus the second quarter. The average basis point fee on equity ETFs linked to MSCI indexes remained unchanged quarter over quarter at 2.67 basis points. A proportionally higher mix of AUM and international exposure funds provided support to maintain this level. Additionally, asset-based fees from futures and options increased sequentially, with results reflecting improvements in the economics we received from our exchange partners. I'll now turn to our adjusted earnings per share growth year over year. Underlying business performance drove nearly half of our $0.52 improvement in adjusted EPS. This included both operating revenue growth 
and relatively flat year-over-year -year expenses as the expense controls we put in place earlier in the year, as well as continued benefits from lower travel and entertainment expenses, have largely offset our ongoing investment initiatives. The balance of the adjusted EPS improvement was primarily driven by a lower tax rate and our third quarter and year-to-date repurchases of MSCI shares. The lower tax rate in the quarter was primarily due to a change in estimates as regulations were released relating to 2017 tax reform. Turning to our balance sheet, we continue to have strong confidence in our capital position and liquidity. Client collections have been healthy, as you've seen from our results. Investors continue to turn to MSCI for mission-critical tools. This strong liquidity position affords us the flexibility to continue to be highly opportunistic in pursuing our capital allocation strategy, as we've done in the past. During the quarter, we completed nearly $207 million of share repurchases and returned over $65 million in dividends to our shareholders. Since the end of the quarter and through October 23rd, we've repurchased an additional $51 million of our shares. Before we move to Q&A, I will highlight some of the changes to our outlook for full year 2020, which we announced in our earnings release earlier today. We now expect adjusted EBITDA expenses to be lower for full year 2020 in the range of $710 million to $730 million. Our expense outlook reflects lower expenses in areas like travel and entertainment, as well as the impact of the continuation of Triple Crown investments that we are pursuing as the environment stabilizes. Our continued investment in these Triple Crown opportunities could result in an uptick in expenses relative to the last couple quarters. We also expect a lower effective tax rate for 2020 in the range of 11.5 to 13.5%. Our adjusted tax rate should run approximately one percentage point higher than our effective tax rate as it has year-to-date through the third quarter. CapEx will now be in the range of $50 million to $55 million. And for free cash flow, we now expect to be in the range of $650 million to $700 million, primarily reflecting stronger cash collections. Full-year interest expense is still expected to be approximately $158 million. However, as we've pointed out to you before, the ongoing low-rate environment is also likely to drive quarterly interest income earned on cash balances to be at similar levels to this quarter for the foreseeable future. From where we stand today, the sales pipeline remains strong and client engagement remains robust and dynamic. Nonetheless, we remain cautious given that the operating environment remains unpredictable. With just a couple days to go before the U.S. elections, as well as the backdrop of the ongoing pandemic, the range of outcomes in global markets and the operating environment remains broad. In any case, we continue to believe our durable, all-weather, subscription-based business model will hold up well, as it has to date. We therefore remain focused on continuing to support our clients, innovate, and ultimately drive forward MSCI's growth algorithms, creating compounding value for all of you. And with that, Operator, please open the line for questions. Thanks. Thank you. As a reminder, to ask a question, you'll need to press star 1 on your telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Please stand by. We compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from Manav Petnik with Barclays. You may proceed with your question. Yeah, hi. Good morning. Uh, I just wanted to ask how you guys we're thinking or, or how we should think about, you know, this, this new wave of, uh, 
I guess, consolidation that's starting to happen also, or, you know, at least we talked about a lot in the press with the large asset managers who are your big clients. And I was just hoping, you know, you could help us understand how we should, you know, think through some of these as they get announced. Yeah, Manav, hi. Uh, Good morning. It's Bear here. So, look, I think that, you know, our our experience in this is – you know, somewhat mixed uh, and uh, and certainly not as negative as it might look uh, on the cover. So first of all, um, you know, we the the consolidation has not been that large this far, insofar as we have seen uh, some cancellations, notably an index related to it. Um, as a general rule. Um, over time, when firms consolidate, we sometimes have a, initially a little bit of a negative hit, but then typically we're able to grow the combined, um, the combined company, larger company, you know, in, in very healthy ways. So, you know, as of today, we're not seeing, you know, a significant impact. And, um, and, and as a general rule, historically, you know, the outcomes have been pretty positive over time. Okay, that's helpful. And if I could just ask, you know, around the investments, uh, you know, back in March, April, uh, when you guys obviously cut some in response to the COVID uh, pandemic, you know, how is how are those investments doing today? Uh, you know, are they coming back? Are they still on hold? I guess, you know, potentially in anticipation of further lockdowns. Just curious how you're thinking about, you know, the comfort levels and going through with some of these investments. So, so the, the first thing that uh, it's important to note, uh, Manav, is that the uh, the set of opportunities that we have to sell, to solve for client problems uh, is very significant, and it has actually increased uh, very uh, largely since the start of the pandemic. Uh, obviously, you know, we can point to uh, ESG as an example, but, uh, but also in fixed income uh, as well in thematic investing. Obviously, the pandemic and the economic dislocations have created significant changes in the way industries are structured and the business models and the like. So those shifts can get reflected in some of these mega trends uh, and the emphasis that we're putting on that uh, thematic mega trend, uh, mega trend investing in order to create indices and structural products and things like that. Uh, so, so the number of opportunities has increased. Now, you know, at the start of the pandemic, like, uh, like everyone else, we reined in a bit, you know, the pace of investments that we had. Uh, a few months later, say two, three months later, we uh, we felt very comfortable with, uh, with where we stood in the financials of the company and the outlook. Uh, we were seeing this increased demand for our products and services, and therefore we stepped up on the on the renewal or, or the replacing of that uh, investment program. Uh, some of that uh, increased hiring and increased investment is uh, reflected in the EBITDA expenses in the third quarter. Obviously offset by, uh, by by decline of expenses in in marketing and and uh, travel and entertainment and a lot of things you know due to the uh, to the lockdown, uh, but you know we we, we did see uh, a pickup on that. We will likely see an increased pickup on that in the fourth quarter and in 2021. 
because we feel that this uh, significant opportunities that the uh, operating environment is presenting to us need to be capitalized with a lot of new products, a, new, a number of new client segments, and a lot of new capabilities in the company. So, uh, so uh, yes, you know, the investment plan uh, continues. It's a, it's a few percentages point below where we wanted it to be at this point, uh, but we're stepping up, uh, you know, significantly on, on increasing it. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you. Our next question comes from Alex Cran with UBS. You may proceed with your question. Yes. Hey, hello, everyone. Um, just quickly on the uh, on the retention rate, nice pickup quarter over quarter, as I think you uh, you had hoped for. But still, I think on a year-over-year basis, I think cancels are still a little bit elevated. So just would be interested to hear some comments. Is this, is this pandemic-related? You made, obviously, some comments around asset management M&A. I think it's a little too soon for that. But any, any, anything else that gives us confidence that, that uh, cancels will continue to trickle lower from here? Yeah, hi, Alex. Bear here. Um, yeah, so I think we the, the simplest way to answer your question is we, we're sort of continue the guidance from last quarter, i.e., um, we are doing everything we can to service our clients. Uh, we are in an environment that is still a bit choppy and noisy in various client segments. There can be some consolidation, as Manav mentioned. Uh, there can be some certain client-specific events. So, so directionally, we're clearly pleased with what happened this quarter. We're going to keep trying to do the best we can to keep the retention rate as strong as possible. But we are in circumstances where, you know, the market and, 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 and what's happening to our clients may put a little pressure. So hopefully in the balance of all that, we'll get, you know, we'll get some good outcomes. And, you know, that's what we'll be working towards. All right. Fair enough. And then second one, also a quick one here on the, on the asset-based fees. Um, you know, uh, the ETF number is pretty self-explanatory, but can you, can you talk a little bit more about the other two components on the, I guess, index mutual fund side? Surprised to see that tick up quarter over quarter. I think that's usually on a delayed um, kind of like uh, uh, charging, and uh, I, I think 2Q was obviously a bad quarter, so surprised to see that tick up quarter over quarter. And then on the uh, futures and options, um, you know, wondering how much there were any sort of one-time fees related maybe to the to the Hong Kong exchange coming online, anything that may not be recurring because that was an outsized quarter again here on, on futures and options. Hey, Alex, it's Andy. Uh, good morning. Maybe to start with the, the second question first on the, the futures and options run rate. As, as we noted in our remarks, we are uh, benefiting slightly from improved economics from our exchange partners, most notably in, in Asia versus the prior quarter. Um, I would highlight that we continue to be very optimistic and excited about the broader derivatives opportunity. Uh, even though we saw volume tick down quarter over quarter, we are seeing big opportunities in, in both the listed derivatives market as well as the, uh, the over-the-counter of the market, which is showing up in, in more the uh, index recurring and, and non-recurring revenue side. Um, on the non-ETF passive front, uh, I would highlight it's more than just index-based mutual funds. Actually, a meaningful component of the, the revenue we see there is coming from uh, what we call institutional passive revenue. Uh, and so it's more dynamic than, than just the uh, index mutual fund trends that you might be seeing more broadly. 
Um, as you highlight, we tend to recognize revenue on a quarter lag where we depend on our clients to report to us average AUM levels. And usually we get those AUM levels reported to us on generally a quarter, but it can be sometimes more than a quarter. Uh, and so it's not a, a kind of direct uh, quarter lag correlation, if you will. The other thing that I would highlight is it's a, a very dynamic equation where we can see, um, you know, some, some positive movements in price, particularly in, in some of the big growth areas like uh, institutional passive mandates for ESG indexes or custom indexes or factor indexes, where in many instances we might have more attractive economics in, in those types of indexes. So long-winded way to say that it is a very dynamic equation. There is some relationship um, related to AUM moves in the prior quarter, but it's much more complex than that. Fair enough. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next question comes from Tony Kaplan with Morgan Stanley. You may proceed with your question. Thank you. Um, Henry, I wanted to ask a broad question on ESG. Uh, the market's been growing really nicely. You grew your ESG and climate run rate at 46% this quarter and continue to be the first mover there. Could you just talk about what you view as your most important differentiators and how you've been able to build on those. Um, I think the question that I get a lot is, you know, how MSCI can keep the number one position as more competitors try to grow in the space. And so if you could just talk about what differentiates your data, capabilities on the index side, relationships, anything you want to add there. Thanks. So, Tony, the, the competitive advantages that we have uh, on uh, ESG and, and now, obviously, a major step up in climate change tools are, uh, are, are significant. And a lot of a multiple number of, of competitive advantages. Uh, as, I, as I indicated in my prepared remarks, uh, a lot of what we do at MSCI gets captured in two big, interrelated trends, right? When we take all, all of our capabilities and put them into indices, which form underlying components for, uh, for portfolios on one hand, and on the other hand, you know, provide all the ingredients, the essential ingredients uh, uh, to build portfolios by our clients, you know, themselves uh, from, from scratch, so to speak. So, so on ESG, think about all the capabilities we have. You know, we are the largest rating agency in the world for ESG. So we provide a huge amount of, you know, ESG you know, ratings in a, on an instrument or investment by investment basis. So all of that then gets, you know, so we're the largest equity, uh, cross-border equity index provider in the world. So we can combine the ESG ratings with the equity indices. We're now putting all of that, you know, the ESG information that we get into risk models, which were the largest provider of equity risk models in the world. So we can monetize on that. We are, we are, uh, you know, putting all of that together into the fixed income space, uh, in which, uh, you know, we, we're, we, we're gonna, we take all the ratings on our, on our fixed income, uh, and the fixed income instruments around the world and put it in there, uh, and the like. So we have a whole product ecosystem that feeds on one another from structured products to uh, futures and options to indexed, uh, indices to uh, single security uh, information about ratings and all of that, uh, to factor models in equity and fixed income. And on the other side, on the client side, we are, compared to some of our other uh, competitors, uh, our client base is the investor. 
you know, uh, and therefore where the highest demand for ESG tools is from investors, not from corporates at this point, you know, or issuers, the highest client demand is investors. There are very few people in the world like us who are well positioned on the investor side to capitalize on that. But having said that, we're expanding into the corporate sector, you know, to provide a lot of these ESG, ESG ratings on a sectorial basis to a lot of our corporate, to, to corporate entities so that they can look at it and figure out how to, how to provide disclosures and improve uh, the information that they provide in order to, uh, to get better ratings, you know, from, from people like us. So a multiple of, is, a, is a quiver of arrows that is going to be very hard uh, for anybody to break, you know, you know, that's a huge moat that we have in this business. And, and lastly, we have a first mover advantage, you know, in the whole world, right? That's great. And Andy, um, next one for you. Just congrats on your new role. Um, I'm not expecting that there will be dramatic change in strategy, especially since you've been part of the leadership team for a while now. Um, just maybe you could talk about how you think about the potential for margin expansion from here over time, just given operating leverage, but also investment needs. Um, you know, should we be thinking about sort of a, a X basis points per year of expansion or EBITDA growth in low double digits? Or what kind of framework do you think of when you're thinking about margins and the potential for, for the business? Thanks. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate the remarks. Um, and as you said, no real major change in strategy, um, particularly given, you know, my, my experience with the company and my role in strategy previously. Um, if anything, I think the, 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 the combination of strategy and finance creates opportunities, opportunities for us to create even more value. I think where we are as a company right now is, is faced with enormous opportunities uh, across all aspects of our company. And so the the next leg of value creation for the company is going to be really prioritizing where we are placing our incremental bets and where we're placing our incremental investments to chase those opportunities. And as Henry just talked about with ESG, making sure we're being proactive in capturing these these very attractive markets and, and really continuing to differentiate ourselves. And so um, the, uh, if you will, the financial algorithm I'd say is, is, um, you know, not changing significantly at this point other than to say we have an intense focus on, on investment here. Um, you know, going back to Henry's uh, comments to the first question, you know, the margin in this current quarter was higher than what we would like. I think that's a reflection of some of the, um, you know, some of the activities we took earlier in the year and reduced uh, expenses in areas like uh, like T&E and professional fees and marketing, um, but those are masking some of the uh, accelerations and in investments we're making. And so as we continue to make those accelerations in, in these investments, we, we go to our upturn playbook, and we're intensely focused on our, our triple crown framework where we are investing in those opportunities that have the highest return, the shortest payback, and are, are most valuable to us and our shareholders. Um, we are going to continue to uh, to invest in those attractive opportunities. So I think you'll see likely a pickup in expenses in the fourth quarter, and that will trickle through to next year, where you will continue to see, uh, I think, an acceleration in, in investment through next year and, and higher expense growth. Um, and so it's it's not a dramatic shift other than to say the, the emphasis is really on driving investment here. And I think that's going to be the, the core source of long-term value for us. 
And as you'd imagine, we'll, we'll probably talk more about this at Investor Day in February. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Our next question comes from Chris Shuttler with William Blair. You may proceed with your question. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Um, question on ESG. So many large asset managers are using multiple providers of ESG data as kind of a, an initial screen, which then feeds into more proprietary ESG analysis, uh, analyses that they put, put in place in-house. Um, so the question is, do you think that ES, the ESG business remains fairly fragmented with asset managers using several providers at the same time, just given how subjective ESG is and how different some of the ratings can be amongst the providers? Um, or do you see that changing over time? And do you think that the desire to work with multiple providers places any kind of cap on how much uh, asset managers are willing to spend on ESG? So definitely, you know, a, a, a good question, and let me try to uh, explain how we view it. Uh, in everything that we do at MSCI, uh, we want to position ourselves as close to the investment decisions by our clients as possible. And therefore, what we're trying to do is to give clients ready-made, already analyzed, already thought through solutions to some of their, you know, their problems and to capitalize on their opportunities. So we are uniquely positioned to do that in creating ESG equity indices, ESG fixed income indices, ESG risk models, uh, in, uh, in, and, in, you know, as I said, in, in equities and fixed income, and we're starting to, to look into uh, and, and develop plans to, uh, to do that in the private asset classes as well uh, and all of that. In order to achieve that, you clearly need the underlying data, the underlying ratings, and all the research associated with those ratings. You, you need the, the screenings and the exclusion research that we do, um, and all of that, but it is not sufficient. It's a necessary condition, but it's not sufficient for success. So where you see competition, you know, for us is in the provision of the underlying data. You know, and a lot of our clients are subscribing to various sources of data, for sure. But ultimately, that data needs to be translated into, into a, a tool for an investment decision. And therefore, we will see some competition in providing underlying data. It's perfectly fine with us. But we are, where our position is very leading and very prominent is in providing the derived, the, the, the tools that are derived from that data in order to help people make better investment decisions. In that space, there are not going to be too many people like us. Henry, just a, a, a quick follow-up on that. Would you be, I mean, as you think longer term around the ESG franchise, do you see yourselves developing some kind of a tool that integrates other third-party ESG data into with with yours and combines it all as a solution? Definitely, uh, that that could definitely happen. Uh, we're not working uh, on that at uh, this very moment. Uh, but that definitely happened, and this is in the spirit of uh, the, the strategic partnerships that are at the at the core 
of our MSCI strategy. You know, we we want to partner up with everyone uh, in the world that wants to uh, to do with that with us in order to serve our clients and for everyone to win and to make money in, in, in all of this. And that will that will definitely be the case in ESG data. We already are partnering up with uh, smaller institutions that provide data. And an example of that is the Carbon Delta acquisition. It started as a partnership in which Carbon Delta was providing us with climate metrics and climate value to, to create joint products. As we developed that partnership, they, we became very, uh, very close to one another, and the Carbon Delta management team and the shareholders decided that it was better that they would join forces with us. That didn't have to happen, but that was, you know, a, an example of a partnership. And we have a few more of those, and we would like to do those in, with the bigger providers of, of ESG information as well. But it, it obviously uh, they may they may view us as competitors, and they may not want to do that. But you know, our intent is to is to do that. Okay, makes sense. Thanks a lot. Okay, your next question comes from Craig Huber with Huber Research. You may proceed with your question. Uh, good morning. A couple couple questions. One, can you talk a little bit about um, the pricing environment from your perspective here? I mean, your revenue growth uh, speaks for itself, but can you just talk about the pricing both within the analytics that you're able to get in this environment and also within your index subscription area, please? I have a follow-up. Yeah. Hi, Craig. Yeah, so look, my, my simple headline is great stability in pricing. We're not really seeing any you know, I would call it unusual pressure or any fundamental changes in the pricing environment at present. So, look, that could change in the future, but right now, you know, nothing to suggest that our pricing power has been affected, uh, you know, in any material way. And then secondly, um, can you size for us your institutional passive products area, I guess including the direct indexing area, whether it be on AUM basis or as a percent of your revenues within indices, for example? Yeah, Craig, it's it's Andy. Um, so we, we haven't put out the institutional passive uh, AUM levels in the past. Um, I can say that it is um, larger than the ETF AUM, just the nature of that market. These are these are big assets, uh, and the fees tend to be lower generally than than the pricing we get on ETFs. Um, you've obviously seen the revenue that we put out, so you can dimension how big the um, the revenue is to us. Um, but this is a significant opportunity, particularly on the uh, institutional passive front that I alluded to earlier, um, where increasingly institutions are investing directly into an index. And in many instances, those are, are kind of customized indexes to help them achieve their objectives. Uh, and so many times those will involve um, ESG overlays, factor overlays, increasingly things like thematic uh, type considerations. Uh, and so we're very excited about that opportunity. You alluded to the direct indexing opportunity. I think it's very similar, but but for a different client base. So with the rise of uh, direct indexing, um, particularly in, in channels like the wealth channel, um, we are in a very unique position to, as Henry was talking about in his opening remarks, either either provide uh, the index uh, that uh, the client can invest directly in or provide the ingredients that uh, the wealth manager can use to create a uh, an index um, that's that's uh, directly suited to that client. And so we think we're very well positioned to capitalize on, on both opportunities. Great. Thank you both.
Thank you. Our next question comes from Owen Lau with Oppenheimer. You may proceed with your question. Yeah, thank you for taking my question. Uh, could you please give us an update uh, on your partnership with uh, with Burgess? So what are the new products in the pipeline and maybe which product you think can move the needle longer term? Thank you. Uh, yes, so uh, at the beginning of this year, as you know, we announced the uh, the equity investment uh, in uh, Burgess and we had uh, spent uh, a meaningful amount of time uh, in the prior years working with uh, uh, Burgess uh, databases to create risk models in, um, in, in private equity, for example, for our multi-asset class uh, uh, enterprise uh, risk and performance uh, product line. So, uh, you know, on the heels of that equity investment, we have now launched into a, uh, a wide-ranging uh, discussion about many other areas where we can uh, partner in the use of, of that data. And, uh, and that got slowed down uh, in the second quarter. You know, we, we started uh, in earnest in the first quarter. It slowed down in the second quarter and through the summer because of the, uh, the disruptions on the, uh, on the pandemic. Uh, but it's now back, back on track. And, uh, and, and examples of that in the last, say, month and a half or so, we have held uh, very significant, uh, very senior level discussions with, uh, with the biggest uh, in alternative investment managers uh, in, uh, in, in ways in which we can partner up with them strategically and help them uh, with, uh, with a lot of their needs on data and analytics to, to capture a bigger you know, pie of, uh, of investment opportunities from the institutional investors or, or the LP uh, clients. So, uh, so that has not yet you know, monetized, uh, but for sure the dialogue that we have is at the most senior level, extremely, extreme high levels of interest you know, to do this and the like. The other thing that happened is, as you saw, Jay McNamara, you know, who was a long-time executive at MSCI, uh, was named president of Burgess, and uh, and his mandate is to build a state-of-the-art, you know, uh, a client coverage organization uh, for uh, for Burgess uh, in terms of sales and relationship managers and uh, consultants and and uh, marketing people and pro commercial product management people and all of that. So uh, uh, Jay is is very busy at work in building that, and with that front office organization in a much higher state uh, is going to coordinate very closely with the MSCI client coverage organization in order to, um, you know, to expand significantly the, uh, the sales and the penetration that uh, the Burgess and MSCI have uh, in, um, in clients around the world. So, uh, so there, are, there are kind of two areas you know, of, of collaboration. There is the sales and penetration with clients. And the second one, you know, on the product side, trying to uh, to, jo to do joint products in either evaluated pricing or exp expansion of the data sets or uh, or risk models or the like. Got it. That's very helpful. And then for the demand from a broker dealer for, for OTC derivatives and structured products linked to MSCI indexes. Uh, could you please help us understand uh, the growth a little bit more here? And I think you mentioned uh, one example for that, which is a new product. But was it 
what's the growth uh, mainly driven by volatility uh, with the same client base, or you can actually in, increase the penetration here. Thank you. Yeah, sure. So um, I think it's really a, a strategic shift. Clearly, market volatility doesn't hurt. But I would say that if we look back on this segment historically, you know, our approach was much more to just take our existing indexes and license them. Um, today, uh, so it's more like a product sale type of relationship. Today, we're in much more of a service mode with these clients. We're typically involved much more in customization. Um, some of that customization is also involving our analytics tools as well as our, uh, our indexes and on a variety of new methodologies. So I think it's really a pretty significant shift in focus. Uh, a, a step up in servicing, and, uh, you know, we, we hope to continue to be able to see, you know, pretty attractive growth uh, from the segment based on that. All right, that's very helpful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next question comes from Keith Hassan with North Coast Research. You may proceed with your question. Good morning, guys. You know, I was hoping you might be able to get, provide some color on the sales environment in terms of how it compares now versus, a, say, a normalized environment. I mean, it certainly looks like your sales are doing fine, but would you guys say that you're able to sell without any issue, even with the work-from-home constraints that a lot of your geographies are still seeing? Um, I, the short answer is yes. Um, I, I must say it's, um, you know, it, it has been uh, both, I would say, an, a large effort and a pleasant surprise. So, you know, we've, we've put enormous focus on ensuring that we have all the right uh, focus, first of all, just purely, you know, keeping the teams together, keeping the teams motivated, you know, from a managerial point of view. We've enabled uh, them with technology so that pretty much everything that we can do in terms of demos uh, of our products, et cetera, can be done online. Uh, and, and in many instances, we found that, for example, for, for client events, uh, you know, we we actually have more attendance uh, than we did in the sort of physical attendance days. So, so I think you know, in, in terms of the sales process, uh, we're you know things are going really well. I would say the mechanics of it, and and I think that that's reflected in you know pretty pretty decent sales that we've been been having in view of the circumstances. Yep, got it. Thank you. And then. Andy, just a little bit more geography here. You know, you talk about the investments that you guys have made. Um, if we look at the income statement, you know, is most of that investment going to be in the R&D or in the cost of goods sold on? But where can we kind of see that investment, you know, as it fluxes? Yeah, it's it's kind of spread across the board. Um, so clearly there is an element that shows up in, in R&D, and you've seen some modest growth there. Um, but there is uh, also an element that goes into cost of selling, Um and, uh, and, and sales and marketing as well. So when you think about the nature of these investments, it's mainly headcount and, and the bulk of our costs are compensation, compensation related. And that's the case for investments as well. So it's hiring technologists, it's hiring researchers, and it's hiring salespeople um, to go after these new opportunities. And so depending on the exact roles, you'll see those spread across mainly those three buckets uh, in the income statement. Got it. Thank you. Appreciate it. 
what I would also add uh, is that the uh, over the next two three years, you're also going to see a geo geography uh, change uh, in terms of uh, you know our, our move from our own data centers and our own production environment, in which uh, a lot of the investment is capex, you know, to uh, to uh, the uh, Microsoft Azure cloud which we, we mentioned uh, in the summer uh, on our announcement. Uh, and therefore, the, uh, the, the, we see a, uh, a significant amount of savings and a significant amount of scalability of our production environment. Uh, and in terms of the expenses associated with that, they will, they will go from CapEx and therefore depreciation uh, more into uh, EBITDA expenses uh, as time goes by. And we'll, we'll keep you apprised of uh, of, of those changes so that there is no confusion in terms of what's happening to the EBITDA expenses. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Henry Chen with BMO. You may proceed with your question. Hey, everybody. Uh, good morning, Henry. Um, and congratulations, Andy, on the, on the new role. Um, I, uh, I wanted to, I mean, I wanted to ask a little bit about, about the strategy. It sounds like, um, especially with the partnerships and it seems like there's, there's a, a lot of new solutions being developed, um, with each call. I, you know, is this, is this a significant or is just a, is this a change in strategy that, in, in terms of how we should think about it in, in terms of, you know, going through more partnerships? Um, I guess it seems like it's more of a license model or is it more of a service model? Um, so just, yeah, if you, if you could just explain that a little bit and how should we think about that? And, and I guess, you know, with some of these new products, um, you know, where, where do we see that in, in terms of the, the metrics? Um, I'm assuming most of it's an index, but it's just trying to understand how to, how to track that as well. Thanks. It, it is definitely a, uh, I will not, Think of it as a quantum jump on strategy, uh, but it's definitely a change uh, in the evolution of the strategy. And you could think of it as, in the, in, first of all, in the concept that, that I mentioned in the prepared remarks, which is how do we capitalize on these two big areas that we are uh, operating under, which is provide indices as underlying underlines for portfolios and, and the opportunity that there is immense because pretty much every portfolio in the world can have, uh, can have an index to serve as a guide, a benchmark, could be a, you know, a passive replication or could be for the creation of baskets for, uh, for structured products or for, uh, you know, for uh, OTC uh, derivatives or, or obviously indices of any kind and all types, you know, for futures and options. So, uh, so that's, you know, and then, you know, what are all the ingredients? Some of them are off the shelf. Some of them are customized. Some of them are market cap. Some of them are, uh, you know, are factors and, you know, and, and ESG. Some of them are climate. Uh, some of them are thematic, you know, in terms of the big mega trends in the world. Uh, you know, they could be equities. They could be fixed income. And eventually there will be private asset classes that can be used in a variety of ways. So that's, that's a big, you know, I think it's more of a recognition of the, of the role that we're playing in the investment industry and how that role can become even bigger by us having this mindset, you know, on this. The second uh, part is obviously the ingredients. 
that we use those ingredients ourselves to build those indices. So we might as well have all those ingredients available to, uh, to the client base, you know, on, on that. So therefore, that's one part of it. The second part of it is that, you know, when we see others buying companies all over, you know, and we say, should we be buying a lot of those companies? Should we be buying all those capabilities? And in some cases, we will, uh, you know, especially smaller bolt-on acquisitions that will accelerate the work that I just described. But in many cases, you know, our inorganic tools don't have to be an outright acquisition in a, in a competitive bidding process with very high prices, low returns sometimes, execution risks, and all of that. We say, why don't we partner up with a lot of those firms? Many of those firms don't want to, for the number of firms that want to sell themselves, there are a lot more that would like to partner up with us to create, uh, you know, joint opportunities. So we have made that partnership central, partnership with clients, of course. we always done that. But partnerships uh, with people that give us uh, data sets that we don't have, partnerships that give us distribution, partnerships that give us this ability to have ex- knowledge and expertise, like in thematic investing that we may not have. Let's say biotechnology. We're not the world experts in biotechnology. Why don't we partner up? with a biotechnology investing firm so we can create those themes and those underlying indices for underlying for portfolios and all of that. So central to what we do is our answer to we don't have to own the whole world. We're a small company with limited resources. So why don't we partner up with people in order to jointly serve the needs of our clients and everyone wins. And Henry, maybe just to add, um, if Henry touched on, uh, M&A and, and the potential for tuck-in tuck acquisitions or bolt-on acquisitions. Um, as you know, we're, we're extremely disciplined, financially disciplined, but also strategically disciplined to the points that, that Henry made. Um, and capital, we are we are very uh, protective of our capital. Um, and, you know, we look at the returns we can get across all uses. Um, and I, I would highlight that discipline, as you can see, on the, the share repurchase front, where we've repurchased to date, uh, year-to-date, over $600 million of our shares uh, at prices, on average, uh, less than $300 per share. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's always a trade-off in terms of the uses of our capital. Yeah, okay. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. Um, it's like a vast expanded TAM. Um, so I, I guess just a quick follow-up. So when, when you mentioned um, uh, combining finance and strategy, uh, I guess I guess what do you mean by that? Um, is it like the partnerships or taking minority stakes or um, to, just how to uh, – what, what I guess how, how should we think about that? I guess I'm, I'm just yeah. – I don't know what that is. <laughs> it, it, it's a fair it's a fair question yeah it's and, and probably a, a novel concept um, but it, it's mainly focused actually on the organic prospects and so when we think about what is going to drive the most value for the company over the next several years um, there's uh, you know there are some um, important trade-offs we're going to have to make as, as we've talked about here we have a wealth of opportunities in front of us uh, and so where we place every incremental dollar of capital um, is going to be extremely important. And so we need to have very robust frameworks that we use, like our Triple Crown framework, to, to think about what is going to be the best return on that incremental investment dollar and what's going to be most strategic for us over the long term. There's also an element of uh, an intense focus on efficiency, and I'll call it strategic efficiency. So thinking about how we can – uh, position the company from an infrastructure standpoint, from a process standpoint, 
um, from a technological standpoint to, to create scale uh, and really uh, turn, you know, turn what we do into a competitive advantage uh, for the company going forward. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. All right. Thank, thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Our next question comes from Jake Williams with Wells Fargo. You may proceed with your question. Good, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Okay. Um, appreciate, good afternoon. appreciate all the caller on um, ESG provided. Uh, one follow-up question we had is, uh, within the uh, ESG index's revenue, can you break out what is uh, asset-based and what is subscription-based, or at least directionally? So uh, just to be clear, Jake, within the ESG research um, reporting segment, which shows up in all other, um, that is purely just our ESG research and rating. So that's things like our screening tool, our, our ratings. Um, there is no asset-based fee that is, is running through uh, that segment. All of the asset-based fee revenue is, is coming from ESG indexes, which is reported within our index segment. Now, when we show the integrated ESG uh, run rate, which which you've seen, um, which is a run rate figure, um, the the portion um, uh, coming from index, so the ESG index run rate does contain a uh, asset based fee component, but we have not uh, we've not broken out uh, that detail at this stage. Is it fair to assume that within that ESG index? Uh, run rate section that it's half and half, or is it more heavily weighted towards uh, subscription or asset-based? I would say we, hopefully we can give more detail in the future. Um, I don't want to dimension it right now other than to say they're both meaningful. Um, they are both growing. And just looking at the growth in the assets under management and ETFs linked to our ESG indexes, which have grown you know, 100% year over year, you can imagine the asset-based fee component is growing at a, at a, a very robust growth rate within there. Um, but the 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 other um, point of, of reference I would highlight is you can see on our slides, we do highlight the index subscription run rate growth within ESG and factor modules. And you can see that that is growing at uh, 21%. Now there's there's competing dynamics there between factors and ESG, but you can tell the subscription components growing at a very healthy growth rate uh, as well. Got it. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I'm not showing any further questions at this time. I would now like to turn the call back over to Henry Fernandez for any further remarks. So thank you very much, uh, everyone, for uh, for attending uh in the run-up to uh, Investor Day uh, in February of, of next year, uh, as, as we said uh, earlier in the call, uh, we will be uh, reaching out uh, to many of you, uh, either directly ourselves in, in a listening tour type of environment, uh, or uh, some of our some of our people that we work with will be reaching out to you for surveys and opinions on how best to optimize our franchise. Uh, we uh, encourage you to take full advantage of that, to provide, uh, provide us with feedback, ideas, and the like. And, um, and even if you don't get rich, uh, please do not hesitate to reach us directly as well. Uh, if you have uh, ideas and thoughts, uh, we welcome them to put them all into, uh, into our thinking 
as to uh, the best way that we can describe our company, what we're doing, uh, our opportunities, our investments uh, during that uh, you know, critical investor day. Thank you very much, and stay well and safe. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.